0: The free Vision app is where you'll find a growing range of on-demand audio and video to help you look to God daily. Search Vision Christian Media in your app store. This podcast is made available by Vision Christian Media thanks to the generosity of our supporters. Your donation today means great podcasts like this remain available to help people look to God daily. Please make your donation to Visionathon today at vision.org.au. Today, 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 today,
1: with Jeff Vines. We are taking the gospel to the world. Pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. Bringing people far from God near to God. We believe in one truth that will be delivered in love and compassion. compassion. Connecting every one person to all that God has promised them.
0: Today, today, today with Jeff Vines. Hello and welcome. My name is Bill and this is Today with Jeff Vines. Well, we've kicked off an epic series, The Story. It's a look at the overarching story of the Bible, from the creation story in Genesis to the book of Revelation. In this episode, Pastor Jeff is in Genesis chapter 6. And he's looking at those big questions in life like, why am I here? And why doesn't God save everyone? Let's hear from Pastor Jeff now for more in his series, The Story.
1: Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Genesis chapter 15. We continue uh, our series called The Story. While you're doing that, uh, two Australian blokes, kind of rock and roll stars, uh, were in New York City, and they had just done a concert. It was sold out, so they were quite happy, and they do what most Aussies do after a concert. They found the local pub, started to drink a little bit and celebrate, had a little too much to drink, uh, found themselves wandering around New York City, totally lost, incoherent, didn't know where they were. And uh, of course, now they're facing uh, public intoxication. So a police officer wanders by, looks at them, and the two Australian blokes are so incoherent and lost, they don't even know up or down. And they look to the guy and they say, excuse me, fella, uh, can you tell us uh, where we are? And the police officer looks at him and says, folks, do you you know who I am? And one of the Australians looked at his other Australian friend and said, boy, we're in a real fix now. We don't know where we are, and this fella doesn't know who he is. (laughs) And... I know it's not that funny, but it's a good start because what we're doing in the story, we're trying to say that the story, first of all, somebody said it like this, that history is his story recorded in the story, that it's the story of God, what he's been doing from the very beginning and where he's taking creation, what the destination really is. And we're learning through the story. We're supposed to be learning where we are in the scheme of things and where it is that we're going. And that's what the story does effectively because ultimately it answers the four questions people have asked from the beginning. Origin, meaning, morality, destiny. Where do I come from? All found in the story. What is the meaning of my life? What am I supposed to do with my life? Morality, how then should I live And destiny? Ultimately, where's the world going? Where am I going? Where does it all end up? And the story makes an attempt to answer that. Last week we learned two valuable truths and I hope you haven't forgotten yet. Number 1 is this that God created the world ex nihilo, which means that God created the world out of nothing. You will not find another creation account in ancient civilization anywhere similar to the Bible. They are similar in and among themselves. They are very different from the Bible. The Bible does not have God's plurality or some sea monster coming up out of the ocean to create man and create the world. It has God above and beyond creating everything out of nothing. This God creates the stuff from which all the other stuff comes. And because he creates everything out of nothing, he is sovereign. There's nothing to be afraid of. He is not ruled by anything. He is above and beyond all parts of creation. What you create, you have total sovereignty over. We learn, second, that God created the world for you and me. We're the centerpiece. It was made for us. It was made to compel us toward him so that when we walk out and we see the mountains and the sky and we see... Uh, the uh, oceans. And when we go to our favorite place, sometimes there's just a connection you feel with a beautiful place on the planet. It's supposed to compel you toward God. It's supposed to have you think, wow, this is indeed beautiful. I feel a connection. There's something special here and we're supposed to be drawn toward the creator. But not only does it compel us, It also gives us everything we need for survival. The food chain is a miracle of God. And if you've ever studied environmental science, it's amazing how it appears in the words of some scientists that the universe knew we were coming. It is made specifically for us to breathe and to live and to enjoy God's good creation. And that's why when God looked at it in the first part of our story, he said, it is good. And we said the Hebrew word for good there does not mean good versus bad. It means good meaning it's effective. It's productive. It works. Therefore, it's good. It works in that it compels people to God. It works in the sense that you and I can live and breathe and have life right here on planet earth. Now, let's enter into some dialogue, okay, just a little bit before we skip on to the next narrative. It's important to do this, and it's going to take a little thinking on your part, and that, 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 that's not a bad thing. Okay, and you're gonna to need to concentrate. So forget about Starbucks, forget about what you're gonna do afterwards, forget about the coffee you didn't get, forget about the fight you had on the way to church with your wife, forget all about that. Listen, listen, let's play a little bit of role play. The first question that usually uh, gets asked is, Pastor Jeff, and we dealt with this a little bit last week, God creates this beautiful, wonderful world and then he puts a tree in the middle of the garden and ruins everything. Why does he put the tree in the middle of the garden? Now for you and me, that's a hard question, but for ancient civilization, It's not a hard question at all. Remember that Genesis was written for us, but not to us. Moses is recording the creation account for behalf of ancient civilization to answer the questions they would have had in that day, that time. It's like you and I picking up a letter, we read it, and we realize it's not written to us, but wow, it's incredibly applicable, so it is written for us. And God places the tree in the middle of the garden, you're walking by. Think about it. He doesn't put the tree. Somewhere in a cave where it's hard to find. No, he puts the one tree that you can't have right in the middle. So every day you're going, there's that tree again. There's that doggone tree again. I can have everything, but I can't have that. Why? Ancient civilization would have understood perfectly. A king has the right to ask you every single day of your life who are you going to follow? Who are you going to serve? Who are you going to obey? If the king is sovereign over his kingdom, as God is sovereign over this world, he has the right to say, okay, every day you're forced to make a choice. Are you going to serve, follow, and obey the God, the creator of all things, or are you going to serve, follow, and obey something that's created? There are trees that continue to exist in everybody's life. Every day, every person in this room, you walk by something that's just like the tree. You walk by something, you have to decide, am I going to follow and obey God, or am I going to follow and obey this thing? And every time you choose to obey this thing, death comes into your life. You see, that's the symbolism here. That's the metaphor. Every single day of your life, all of us are faced with a choice. For some of you, it's things you look at. For others of you, it's money and how you operate. If you're fair, if you're honest, if you're just, it goes on and on and on. And this world is a world that's chosen not to follow God, but to follow this. And because they follow this, our world is in the condition it's in today. So they would have understood. But there's another question. Okay, Pastor Jeff, got the tree stuff. But Pastor Jeff, why would God create a world in which he knew the people were going to rebel? God knows everything. Now, here's the first part of my answer. As parents, uh, you have no guarantee that your children are going to turn out good. You, You don't. In fact, the odds are against you. They're probably going to turn out like you. Right? Right? And you know what you're all about. Uh, there are many mothers uh, on the planet whose uh, kids are in, uh, death, are in death row that love, still love their kids. The reason you take the risk of having children is because you know it's worth it. The idea that you would have a child and that child would love you and honor you and there'd be a love relationship is worth the risk that they might end up in Leavenworth and rebel against you. I know the next question now. You're saying, well, wait, wait, Jeff, but I don't have foreknowledge. I don't have the knowledge of what's going to happen. God did. God knew that this was going to happen, and he still did it. Now, two things. Number one, I'm suggesting to you that you, even if you knew your child was not going to turn out well, you'd still have him for the moments of love. You'd still have him. But in God's case, you have to understand something. If we had a bowl here, and we're going to stick everything in it that would include the recipe that would end up coming out to love. Think about what do you have to have to have love? Freedom, right? We've covered that, but emotion, passion, desire. All of those have to be put into this scenario if you're going to have love in the created story. The problem is with every ingredient you put into the bowl that will bring forth love, those are the same ingredients required to bring forth evil. Passion, desire, emotion, all of those. The only way God can create a world that has no potential for evil or rebellion is to create a world that has no potential for love and relationship. It's two sides of the same coin. So God, yes, he does create, but he creates in mind knowing that even though rebellion is going to happen, he's going to redeem the world. That's what the story is about. He's going to redeem mankind back to himself. And every time you walk by a tree in your life, whatever it is, if it's an addiction, if it's a relationship, whatever it is, every time you walk by and you choose God, you're moving closer and closer into a relationship where one day he will be your God. You will be his people. Now it goes one step further. Do I still have you? We got to cover this. Got to cover this. Cause I didn't want to be the kind of church. Yeah. Let's just talk about the things that are easy and ignore the things that are hard in one respect. The existence of rebellious humanity glorifies God more than the non existence of glorious or rebellious humanity. I'll leave that up there for a moment. Stay with me. If you're thirsty for a day, water's nice, but if you're thirsty for a week, water is beautiful. <laughs> if you're hungry for a day, food is good, but if you're hungry and you've been fasting for 40 days, that in and out burger tastes like manna from heaven. <laughs> right? The more thirsty you are, the greater the value of water. The more hungry you are, the greater value of food. Good can only be appreciated in the context of bad. God allows to let the wheat and the tares grow together, the good and the bad, in order that you and I might have an ability to distinguish between the both. And that one day, the Bible says in the book of Revelation, at the end of the story, the great rider on the white horse is going to come down and he has a name written on his thigh. Now, young people, that's not an excuse for you to get a tattoo. He has a name written on his side, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. And he is going to bring everything right. And he is going to be worshipped for eternity because we were able to see the contradistinction or the distinction between good and evil, and that he is all that is good. And this miserable world that we've lived in, even though it has all of its good and all of its created order and all of its things that compel us toward God, it still has so much evil because people have chosen to use their freedom rather than to pursue God to pursue their own self-aggrandizement. And that's when people get hurt. 99.9% of the pain and suffering in this world is not God. It's how you and I treat each other. But the only way God could remove that is if he removes our freedom. And if he removes our freedom, he removes the capacity of love. And love is the reason the world was made in the first place. Now, that's important to know because of this. No matter how bad things get, what you're gonna find in the story is that God continues to save a remnant of people. There are two words used we're turning our attention to Noah now, just for a second. Two words used for unrighteousness in the Old Testament. The one word means that you really try to be good, you try to be righteous, you really do, and it breaks your heart when you fail, but in your humanity, you fail, and you're wounded. But there's another word for unrighteousness, and it's a word that means apathy, apathy apathetic. You're, you don't care about being righteous, there's no effort whatsoever, and after year, after year, after year, you can't even distinguish between the light and the darkness, When we come to the story of Noah and people ask me, why would God destroy a whole group of people? You have to understand something. From the time of Adam and Eve, and you never thought you'd hear a pastor talk about DNA. From the time of Adam and Eve, it just gets passed down from one generation to the next generation, next generation, until we come to Noah when there's not even one, other than Noah and his family, that the people are not merely unrighteous in the fact that they're trying to be good but can't. They don't even care. They're apathetic. We're talking about a, a generation of child sacrifice here. We're talking about some barbaric, evil, uncivilized, almost to the point of inhumane or unhumanness. That's the condition of the world. Now, just wait a minute. You, you know what this is like. My, my father's, grandfather's name was uh, a Dean. My father's, father's name was Grover and my father's name was Obie Dean. Remember, I'm from Tennessee. <laughs> my grandfather beat his son. My dad's dad. My dad's dad beat him so severely that he walked with a hump or with, a, with kind of a, Uh, uh, injury to his lower back where his dad beat him with a shovel for most of his life. My dad would have probably beaten us, except he met my mother who introduced him to the good news of the gospel. And my dad never never laid a hand on us. Somewhere along the line, the cycle has to stop. If it doesn't, it intensifies, right? It just keeps getting stronger and stronger and stronger. You take what Hitler said about uh, the Third Reich. He said, I want to create a generation. I want to raise a generation of young people devoid of a conscience, imperious, relentless, and cruel. How do you raise how do you raise a generation devoid of a conscience by starting with the grandparents and then to the parents and then to the children I'm reminded of the movie I'm reminded of the movie Schindler's list and you have this scene where the gestapo comes in to clear out the ghetto uh, the Jews aren't dying quickly enough and so in the movie, the Gestapo comes in and they start basically to just shoot people at point-blank range to kill entire families and then take those who are strong enough to work, declothe clothe them, put them on wagons to be led to the death camps. And on the sides of the street as the Jews are exiting the ghetto, you have these young children shouting, goodbye, Jews, goodbye, Jews, goodbye, Jews. How do you create that much hate? How do you create a whole generation without a moral conscience? You do so by starting with the grandparents and it passes down further and further. Think about racism, Okay. If you have a racist parent, the child is even more so. And then their children are even more so till it gets out of control. The point I'm trying to say is if you remember the movie Lord of the Rings, you have Golem. Here is Golem before he's overwhelmed with pride and covetousness. And then here's Golem after. He almost becomes unhuman. In the days of Noah, the Bible says in Genesis chapter six, and by the way, remember what the New Testament tells us, our days are gonna be like the days of Noah. And what are those days like? When the Lord God saw the extent of human wickedness and the trend and direction of men's lives were only towards evil. He was sorry he had made them. It broke his heart. Two words, extent. Here's this idea that in Noah's day, they were not only not pursuing righteousness, folks, they had no passion for it whatsoever. And it had led to generation after generation after generation of such evil that God looks down. And the Bible says he's sorry. Now let's talk about that just for a second. Sorry. Is it like God said, wow, I didn't see this coming. No. And this is the hardest part, and then we're going to the easy stuff. Please stay with me. What does it mean? God is a linear thinker, just like you and I. That's part of being created in his image. And before day one came, before God said, let there be light, God thought the whole process through, right? He says, okay, I know there is perfect unity and community in the Trinity. Let us make man in our own image so God doesn't create us out of a need, but out of a desire. Different thing. I want community with more. And so God decides to create us because he wants love in this creation scenario. He's got to give us free will. He knows that opens the door for the potential of evil. He realizes that he also knows that humanity will choose to rebel. But at the same time, he also knows that he is going to enact a plan through history to redeem and restore mankind to himself. And so somewhere along the line in that linear thinking, God probably, I want to create But his heart is wounded when he realizes, when I create, there are going to be many people who choose to rebel. But just like you as a parent, he says, but there are going to be some who are going to choose to pursue. And that loving relationship is worth the creation. And so in a sense, yes, the narrator uses anthropomorphic language, the language that humanity can understand. But at the same time, at the same time, he wants us to understand God is not surprised. He's had his hand on history from the beginning. He knew that we would rebel, but he also knew that he would restore. And love is such a high value, a virtue. God was willing to create an order where the potential for evil exists. Now, this is where the story gets good. Well, not good for our sake or not good for humanity, but you say, well, why did God destroy all the people before? You know, why, why, all of, that's a lot of people. If you had cancer, you would be willing to cut out the bad cells to save the good ones. God, his dream was to have community in diversity with humanity and he was insistent that he was going to cut out the unrighteous, keep those who were seeking him and begin anew. And even if, you believe, even if you're not a literalist and you don't believe the story of Noah is real, which I think you would be mistaken, but even if you're not a literalist, the reality is the metaphor still stands that you and I are made in the image of God. We all get a choice to walk by what tree every day and what you choose will bring death or life into your life. God destroyed the time, the days of Noah because he wanted to stagnate the degenerative process, save what was left and began anew. And when the water started to subside in the story of Noah, Noah sent out a... And the dove came back with a... And today we use the olive branch as an extension of... Peace. Isn't that interesting? He gets an olive branch from an olive tree, and this is a peace. And one day, now do you hear the eight running ground notes? One day, God's going to extend another something from another tree, and he's going to hang on a tree, and this is going to be his peace offering so that we'll know it's safe to come outside again because we are good with God. Now, stay with me. This is where it gets so good and I got to cover so much. I want to share something with you that this is the next narrative. We meet Abraham. Abraham. And in Abraham's story, we have an upper level and a lower level. So there's something going on up here and there's something going on down here. Now we're down here and I want to cover what's going on down here first, but you got to stay with me. Abraham, we're introduced to. And in Genesis 15, something dramatic happens that should change every person's life in this room. You should never be the same again. If we don't get you here with the word, I'll, we will never get you. This is it. Because Abraham has four dramatic encounters with God. Dramatic. The first one is in Genesis 12. And Abraham is living in the land of the Chaldeans. And God comes to Abraham and he says, get out. Get out from your people get out from your family get out from your land get out from your country leave your father's house behind leave everything that's familiar to you and go away get out to a land that I will show you and the bible says so abraham got out not knowing whither he was going i love that whither i don't know where whither is but he didn't know where it was and the second dramatic encounter happens in genesis 15 now think about it abraham's still just wandering god told him to wander he's been wandering a while he's hitchhiking no. And God says, Hey, Abraham, I want to talk to you while you're on the road here. Yes, Lord. I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sands on the seashore. Not only that, but Abraham, from your people is going to come one person that will bless entire humanity. Now, when Abraham heard that from God, Abraham's probably assuming two things. Number one, you can't have a lot of kids till you have one. So God's going to give us a child. And two, uh, he's probably going to give us some land so that we can raise our children and protect our land. In a way, as much as I hate to use the term, God is giving the promise to Abraham of health, wealth, and prosperity. There's nothing more you would have wanted in Abraham's day than wealth and land and a family and people and sons and daughters, man. It was the highest, highest value. And then we come <laughs> to uh, Genesis chapter 17. And this time, it's like Abraham comes to God, or God comes to Abraham, but Abraham speaks first because he says, God, you know, it's been quite a few chapters now. He probably doesn't say that. He says, Lord, you said to me that you were going to give us a son. And well, God, I mean, I I, I haven't wanted to say anything, but it's been 25 years. You know what God's response is? Abraham says, God, you said we're going to have a son in this nation and this land. God, it's been 25 years and I'm 99 years old, God. And my wife, Sarah, she's not getting any younger. She's 90. Do you know what God says? God says, and (laughs) your point is, he says, Abraham, just wait, wait. And then we come to Genesis 22. Finally, the fourth encounter, they have a son named Isaac. And you know what God says to him? I know you love your son. It's a really cool thing. I want you to take him up on top of the mountain and sacrifice him, kill him. Somebody has schematized Abraham's life this way. Abraham says, God, I'm going to send you out. Where, God? I'll tell you later, just go. Abraham, I'm going to give you a land. Where? I'll tell you later, just wander. Abraham, I'm going to give you a child. When? Uh, later. Just wait. Abraham, kill your child. Why, God? I'll tell you later, just walk up the mountain, take the knife in the fire here's the lower story. Here's what makes Abraham so unique. Now we're talking about the lower story right now. We'll get to the bigger story than there. The lower story is this. Abraham. Okay. I'm not saying it's perfect. Can you say Hagar? Yeah. Do you know who Hagar is, right? It's when he got impatient with God and he said, I'm going to help God along a little bit. So I'm going to go have a relationship with a concubine, speed things up a little. So he's not perfect. But here's what you do notice about Abraham. Abraham. Ultimately, when everything's said and done over time, you'll notice he really did trust in the promises of God, even though he sometimes did not understand them completely. And because he trusted, there were times in his life he would come to God and say, God, you told me this, you said that. You, know, you told me you're going to give me this land. You told me you're going to give me this people. God, I just want to know when's it all going to happen. As a matter of fact, God, right now, I'd settle just for an okay life. <laughs> Abraham is able to, to live a big life because he trusted in the promises of God. He really did trust in the promises of God.
0: You've been listening to Today with Jeff Vines. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff.
1: Because you know well and good that your security is not in God. You want it to be, but it's in other things. Your demeanor changes and fluctuates based on how much money you have in the bank. Your demeanor changes when you think you're fat or when you're skinny. Your demeanor changes when you think people value or don't value you. When somebody says a compliment to you when they don't. All of those things are always shifting and changing. And here's the reason
0: why. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Vines wherever you get your podcasts.